Does the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hataliah, it came to pass in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah, and I asked him concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. It's interesting. I was thinking about this, you guys. Um, the men are studying the book of Nehemiah, right, guys? And you're getting so blessed by that. Um, a couple of Sundays ago, Rich taught on Father's Day, and I was kind of surprised. I, I thought that he would teach a Father's Day message, but he taught on Nehemiah chapter 1. And then here we are again. Uh, in Nehemiah chapter 1. And so you know what? I think God's trying to, to talk to us. I think, you know, what does the Bible say? Out of the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word is confirmed. If I were you, I would kind of raise up your spiritual antennas a little more and say, Lord, speak for your servant listens. We're just going through this book, and, and I think God wants to teach us some amazing lessons. And there are so many things we're going to learn as we study this book, uh, Nehemiah himself is an inspiration to light a fire within us, to change the world. And I always get passionate about that because I tell you what, if I can get one or two or three people or maybe all of you with an understanding that God can use your life to impact this world like you don't even know, like you can't even begin to imagine, people that would rise up like a Martin Luther or a John Huss or a William Tyndale or whatever, you know, those guys that impact history, people that would rise up, not be lazy and fight for Christ, get caught up in the kingdom, then I tell you what, man, it's worth it. You know, Nehemiah is a guy that inspires us like that. Let me ask you a question. Who do you care for? Who do you care for? Some people, they don't care about anybody but themselves. Nehemiah cared for his people because he loved God. And he loved the people of God, and so he cared for the people. Who do you care for? I would even ask you, if you could, maybe have a homework assignment, and you write it down. Who do you care for? You know, and a lot of it here, I think it has to do with our family, right? And then, and then hopefully within the church, there are responsibilities that you have. If you're not serving in the church... Somehow, some way, you are in sin. Now, I'm not saying you got to necessarily sign up for a ministry, although that a lot of times is what you need to do. But, you know, you're a part of the body of Christ. And if you're just not doing anything, you're either being lazy or you're not taught, well, something's wrong. you got to know what your ministry is. you got to know what your gifts are. Who do you care for? You care for your family. And then, you know, for others, they're called to the marriage ministry. And they have such a special place and burden in their heart for the married couples. Some the young adults or the youth or the children or the fifth graders or whatever. The people that are in prison. I mean, it's just amazing to me how you can have a burden for the people that God calls you to minister to. If you don't have a burden for anybody, if you don't care about anybody, if all you are is living a selfish life, then you're sitting on the doorsteps of hell. 
So the first question is, is who do you care for? The second question is, who do you pray for? I mean, Nehemiah, when he found out what was going on in Jerusalem and all the Jews, man, that guy started to pray and to fast and to mourn and to weep for four solid months. What about you? Do you pray like that? Or are you just going to fling one up once in a while? How can you expect to defeat the forces of hell when you're not willing to get on your knees and pray? Nehemiah did that. He fasted. He prayed. He sought God. If you're not doing that, I'm telling you this right now. The devil is defeating you every day of your life. And that's why it's so important we learn from this. We don't just read this. Oh, that was pretty cool. You know, the way that he fasted and prayed for four months. And it's cool because as we go through our study today, we're going to see not only that he prayed, but even how he prayed. I think we can learn from that. So the first question is, who do you care for? Who do you have in your role and responsibility as a human being here on planet Earth before you die? Number two is, how do you pray for them? Do you pray for them? And then number three is, what are you doing about it after that? You know, some people, they're doing stuff, but they're not praying. There's no power. What we have to make sure we do is to pray and have power. And as we pray, then God will then bless the works of our hands. And that's why there's so much to learn in the book of Nehemiah. It's going to be a, an awesome book. Um, if you guys remember all the dates, you know, we have gone through Ezra. Next is Nehemiah. Then after this, we're going to look at the book of Esther. There are all these books written. Uh, they call it the return period. In 536 BC, 50,000 returned from Jerusalem under the leadership of Zerubbabel and Joshua to rebuild the temple. In 516, the temple was completed. In 478, Esther became queen. And so when you go to the book of Ezra, between chapters 6 and 7, you put the whole book of Esther there. Okay? Then you continue to go through the book of Ezra, and then 2,000 more return under the leadership of Ezra to restore the people to God through his word. And then 444 B.C., some say 445, right around there, is when Nehemiah travels to Jerusalem, we're going to see, to rebuild the walls. That's the initial uh, vision, and then he goes on, and God uses him in a great way in the country. You know, we don't have walls today the way they did then. Back then, if you had a city that was important, maybe the capital of your country, you would have these massive walls to protect yourself. Of course, that's the most obvious problem with a city without walls is that the city lacked protection. And so anyone could come in at any time. You know, yesterday I, I saw a, a heartbreaking story on the, on the news I don't know if you guys heard about this. There was an elderly couple in the city of Arcadia who were robbed of over $15,000 in cash and jewelry because uh, there was three men. Uh, they came in at 10 o'clock at night, and they just walked through the back door because they they never locked their, their back door. And so uh, they came in. They got the, the dad, the mom, elderly couple, and... Uh, and they robbed them of $15,000. And so what ends up happening? No walls, no gates, no locks, no protection. You see, Jerusalem was without walls, no protection, vulnerable to any and all attacks of the enemy. 
And, and that's just a, a really awful place to be if you think about it. I mean, it can be true of a nation, it can be true of a flock, it can be true of a family, even a person. It can be, you know, individual people that have no walls of protection from the enemy. And so what ends up happening in that life, because they're not sold out and surrendered, completely committed, they're not all in, they got one foot in the world and one foot in the church, and they are just like a sitting duck for the devil. There's some people like that. I mean, I don't know if you guys can imagine that. I, I was thinking of that proverb in 25, 28. It says, whoever has no rule over his own spirit is like a city broken down without walls. And so if you have no rule of your own spirit, you can't control, you can't overcome. You know, it speaks of self-control. And so, you know, I have to ask myself, do I lack self-control. Some of us here do, some of us here know people who do. According to the scriptures, that's rooted, it's related to one without any walls of protection. That's the link, that's what it's like. And the devil comes in and he has a field day. So if that's you, what do you need? Well, one thing you need is the book of Nehemiah. You need the truths of this book so that God would build walls all around your life, you see? You know, the other thing that can take into consideration along with the protection factor is that a nation without walls was a reproach to the God of that nation. You know, it's a disgrace. You know, think about these people, let's say the Moabites or the Ammonites or whatever, they're walking past you know, Jerusalem, and they see that all the walls are broken down, you know, and so they're, they're walking by and they say, well, that Yahweh is the God of the Jews, right? And, and look at their walls, broken down, uncared for, gates are all burned up. I mean, there's no way their God is the living God. I mean, it's just a terrible witness. It, it was a reproach. It was a shame. It stripped God of his glory. And the same is true in our life. When we're not really living that, that life of a witness for Christ, where we have our walls up and we're protected and overcoming the enemy day by day, then it is, it is a shame. And I can really relate to this, to be honest with you, in a, in a physical way. A while back, a portion of my block wall fell down. And it hasn't been that long, right, Shelley? couple of days or years or something like that but it's this um it's all you know messed up man so when you walk when you drive past my house it's just to be honest with you it's a shame they're like isn't that the pastor guy <laughs> and his walls all broken down and so i was got super convicted i told my wife after i come back from cambodia and i get over my jet lag I think it only takes about two months. Then I'm going to rebuild that wall. But you know, that's what the walls are. They're, they speak of protection, and they speak of the glory of that God. And so, in this situation, the Lord raises up Nehemiah. He, he does. But I want to tell you something. At the same time, it's so cool how Nehemiah rises up. God raises up, but Nehemiah rises up in sovereignty, and then there's a responsibility, and they work together. You know, it doesn't matter that he wasn't a stonemason. He doesn't make excuses. He embraces the mission. He cared not that he was only a cupbearer. 
he answered the call of God upon his life. Because the most important thing in the work of God is God, not me. And if that's where God calls you, then there you must go. You know, my prayer is that as we study this book, all of us would rise to our responsibility to make a dent for good in history. You know, one of the interesting things is that Nehemiah is actually the last book of Jewish history, and I think you and I might be very well living in the end of human history. So he's a great example for us, Nehemiah is. His name means Yahweh comforts, and we're going to see how important that is in a little bit. And, and so we see here that Nehemiah, in chapter 1, verse 11, it says he was a cupbearer. And uh, you guys know what that is, right? I mean, they would be there tasting the wine, maybe even some of the food to make sure the king didn't get poisoned. And so it was an important position. Nehemiah had been promoted by God to a very trusted position in the kingdom. He was not only to taste the wine or food, ensuring he wasn't poisoned, but he meant it meant that Nehemiah would even have a certain amount of influence. He would be very wealthy. He would be very, very cultured. He was definitely a handsome dude because you couldn't be in the king's presence in that inner circle unless you had to look, right? I mean, this guy had everything going for him, and he could have just kicked back right there and then enjoyed his life. But God just rocked his world and knocked him out of his comfort zone, and God would do a great and mighty work. So we're going to see three things today. Number one, Jerusalem broken. Number two, Jerusalem burdened. And then number three, Jerusalem bound. And so we read verses one through three about Jerusalem being broken. Now it mentions in verse one that Nehemiah is the son of Hakaliah. And his name, Hakaliah, means Yahweh enlightens. That's Nehemiah's dad's name. That's what it means. You know, we don't know anything about Nehemiah's father, but if I had to guess, and this is just a guess, I would venture to say that he not only had a good name, but he had a good nature. Because somebody had to teach Nehemiah about God. And somebody had to teach Nehemiah about the people of God and the city of God. And somebody had to teach Nehemiah how to pray to God. And I wouldn't be surprised if it was his father, for this is what fathers are to do for their children. If you're here today and you have a father, if you have children, if you're a father, I, I implore you to know that your primary responsibility is to raise your children up in the ways of the Lord, no matter how old they are. Continue to pray for godly offspring. For what good is it if I have succeeded in everything else and yet failed? As a father, Hakaliah, he did such a great job with Nehemiah. But we read here in verse 1 that it was in the month of Chislev, which is right around November 15th, December 15th, right in the, between those months. We read in verse 1, it's the 20th year, which is in reference to the 20th year of the reign of Artaxerxes, who history tells us uh, began his reign in 465 B.C., so this takes place right around 445, 444 B.C. And uh, it says right here that Hananiah, one of his brothers, came with men from Judah. Now, according to Nehemiah chapter 7, verse 2, Hananiah was his biological brother. So he comes along with others. They return from Jerusalem. 
And so Nehemiah asks them about the condition of the people and Jerusalem. He was concerned about the Jews who had returned, who had survived. He was concerned about Jerusalem. This special city referred to over a thousand times in the Bible, God's chosen city is so special and rightfully so. So here Nehemiah asks about them. No, Jerusalem should have a special place in our hearts. I know it doesn't in the hearts of the Jews. I was, I was listening to one pastor, and he was talking about how he was uh, 17 years old in 1967. How old were you guys in 1967? Some of you here weren't born yet, okay? But anyways, I was one, just to let you know. But anyways, uh, I remember this whole event. No, I'm just joking. Um, <laughs> In 1967, this guy, he said he was just interested in dropping acid and getting high and getting drunk. And he said he was in the middle of a very Jewish community. And uh, he was in the supermarket. And uh, I guess because of the fact that there was a high Jewish population, when the Jews regained control of Jerusalem in 1967, on that day, there was an announcement made over the loudspeaker in the supermarket, and it said that the Jews had regained control over Jerusalem. If you know your history, you know that it's been about 2,000 years. And so he said when the announcement went out, it, it didn't really hit him too much, but he said that he just saw all these droves of people just fall to their knees in the middle of the market, and they just began to weep and to praise God and to weep and to praise God. Why? Because Jerusalem's special. That's why. And when you know the Lord, and when you know the Word, like I said already, it's mentioned a thousand times in the Bible, this city of peace. Man, you know how special it is. The Jewish people, the Jewish land, they are near and dear to us as Christians. You know, Nehemiah cared. He was deeply concerned, and so he he asked, he inquired, even though he was already living the good life, the com comfortable life, he turned aside to ask how they were doing. You know, it's interesting, he's almost a fulfillment of Jeremiah's question in chapter 15, verse 5. If you can write that down, maybe you can look it up now or later, depending on how good you are with your Bible, but check this out. Jeremiah 15, 5, when God was judging the Jews, Jeremiah asked this question, For who will have pity on you, O Jerusalem? Or who will bemoan you? Or who will turn aside to ask how you are doing? That's a crazy question. Jeremiah's like, man, you guys are so bad, nobody's going to care about you, no one's going to ask about you. But what ends up happening is Nehemiah does just that. He cares. And he asks, and what does he do? He finds out that the survivors who were there were in great distress and reproach. The word distress, it means extreme anxiety, sorrow, or pain. The Hebrew word is usually translated evil. Other translations use the word affliction or, or trouble. It was just a, a great and terrible trouble. That's where God's people were. You know, and who knows, maybe there's some of you here tonight, in all reality, thank God that you're still saved, but you're hanging by a thread. And I, I want you to know it doesn't have to be that way. We don't have to live in distress and trouble. 
We are God's kids, and we can live in triumph. There's more for us. Here were the people, Nehemiah finds out they're in distress, and they're in reproach. And this speaks of scorn and shame and disgrace. And and so it's interesting, if you go over to chapter 2 of Nehemiah, verse 17, so he goes to take away that reproach. But he says to them, you see the distress that we're in, how Jerusalem lies waste, its gates are burned with fire. Come and let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. Seriously, when people think of you, do they think of a godly man or woman? Someone who loves the Lord, who knows the word, who cares about people. They're not accused of backbiting or slandering or sin or getting high or doing all that crazy stuff. They have character to their life. That's how people should think of us because that's how we should be. But what's happened in the church so many times is people have dropped their expectations. Well, I don't care how people think about me. It's really not a big deal. You know, don't get me wrong, man. Reputation is one thing. Character is another. But sometimes people are a joke. They don't really love the Lord. They're not really here to seek God. They're not here to be baptized with the Holy Spirit and, you know, hear God's voice and make some radical changes and go out there and, and save the world. They're here for whatever reasons. They might not even know why they're here. I mean, that's a shame. That's a reproach. God wants to do a work to take that shame and reproach away. And so Nehemiah, he's going to teach us exactly how to, to do that. You see, the walls are broken down. The gates were burned with fire. If you read 2 Kings 25.10, it talks about the Babylonian army who had broken down the walls all around Jerusalem in three sieges. The first one is in 606, the last one in 586. And they just broke it all down. They thrashed it all down. And it's been hundreds of years. Maybe you're here today and it's been a long time. And God is saying, okay, I love you, Miha. I love you, Miha. I want to work in your life today. But you got to let me meddle with the middle. And you got to come to that place of absolute surrender. You're holding on to sin. What are you holding on to? Sexual sin? Are you holding on to your drugs? Are you holding on to your alcohol? Are you holding on to your anger? Are you holding on to your sin? You're not going to get far unless you let it go. Are you holding on to your prayerlessness? You got to start. You got to, you got to, we got to get right. Jesus is here with his authority to do a great work in his church because he loves his bride. We don't just go to church to hear a, a, a study. We go to church so God would give us strength and God would teach us and God would plant his word in us like a seed that would go down into good ground and bear fruit. And so Jerusalem is broken and then comes this burden, this Jerusalem burden. And in verse 4, it says, So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. 
You know, Nehemiah didn't react like most people do. Most people, you know, good Christians, they say, wow, that's terrible. I'll, I'll, re I'll remember them. And you know what? I tell you what, every once in a while, I'll shoot up a, a prayer for them, right? No, he became deeply burdened for the people. And that's what I was telling you about earlier. I was asking that question, who do you care for? Who do you care for? Who do you weep for? Who do you fast for? Who do you pray for? That's what Nehemiah was. There's a burden that hit him. It was of the Holy Spirit. This is not some human concoction or human emotion. This is God. This is God weeping over the city of Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. How I long to gather you together as a hand gathers your chicks under her wings, but you were not willing now you see your house is left to you as a desolation i mean you know when we when like i, I mentioned on sunday you know about this vision this this little 12 year old boy has I mean, it's a vision from god and in that vision you know there in cambodia what ended up happening was this young boy he saw that he was walking on water but he saw everyone else and I don't know if it was family or maybe some of the others from the orphanage, but they were all sinking and drowning in the water because they had no faith. And this is what happened to that boy. He spoke in tongues, but he cried. And then he would speak in tongues, and then he would cry. And he would speak in tongues, and he would cry. And he did this for an extended period of time. And then he finally fell asleep. But the next morning, he woke up again, and he spoke in tongues, and he cried. And he spoke in tongues, and he cried. And, you know, we don't know, and some of you may think that's weird, and I'll be honest with you, man, I was like, Lord, what's going on here? But, you know, God's bigger than the box that we put him in sometimes. And when he shared with us the vision of all these people sinking, going to hell, then you, you kind of realize why he cried. Do you cry? Do you weep? Do you mourn? Do you care? This is the burden that we must have. Nehemiah had this burden. And he wept and cried. Because God touched him with his own type of love. And so, you know, I don't know about you, but man, think about this. Verse 4 is a summary of four months of prayer and, and fasting. And he just sits down and he weeps and he mourns and you know, most of us can't even slow down, much less sit down. And I have a feeling that this sit down that Nehemiah had was more of a fall down. I don't know if you can visualize him there on the ground weeping, lamenting, mourning, because his nation was dying. And he saw that. You know, oftentimes when you read the Bible, you'll read these prophets and workers of the Lord that have a burden. They have a burden. You look up that word in the Bible and you'll see it over and over and over again. It's a burden that they bear, that they receive, not in a bad way, but in a good way, where there would be a message and there would be a mission and they would, you know, carry weight because they had a burden, which meant they cared. Why do you do what you do? Because I care. Why do you do what you do? Because I love the people. Because I love God. And there's a burden. And I remember well the words of a wise man who asked that Bible teacher that scathing question. I see you love to teach. 
But my son, the question is, do you love the people you teach? And that's the most important thing. If it's going to be a successful ministry in the eyes of God, that people can't be something you don't care about, that simply roll off your shoulders and you know you shrug them off. It's got to be a burden, a yoke that you bear on your shoulders, you and Jesus walking and working together, just like Nehemiah did, and just like Nehemiah had that burden. And knocked into the ground, he sat down, wept, mourned, and fasted for four months. Now, no offense to you guys, but sometimes some of you here, you start, you know, sweating bullets and crying because I asked you to fast for one day. Like, man, I've got a headache, and I was in a bad mood, and I skipped my lunch. And I'm like, dude, you better, you should fast for four months, man. You know, I remember, you know, and you're like, well, how do you fast for four months? Well, you skip a meal. You skip lunch for four months, or maybe we just do veggies for four months. I don't know. God will show you. Maybe you, you throw your phone away for four months. I don't know. God will show you. I know that would be very, very difficult to live life without your cell phone. But, you know, this is what Nehemiah did. Why? Because he knew he had to seek God, and he had to get God's attention. And, and he's an example for us. And the Lord has been speaking to us about fasting. I wonder if we're listening. You have to be really moved to fast for four months, don't you? And so, so Nehemiah, he prays. And, you know, this prayer is so cool. There's actually a, 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 a I don't know if you call it a format. There are some things I think that are important for us to know as you pray. There in verse 4, again, so it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments, please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night. See, the, the first thing, if you take a close look at it, of the prayer Nehemiah is praying who God is. In one sense, you might call it identification. He's praying who God is. And he calls him there uh, Yahweh God. If it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that's the personal covenant name of Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's the personal God. And then he calls him the great God, the awesome God. In other words, the powerful God. He's this personal God that we get to pray to, but he's this powerful God that we can pray to. There is nothing too hard for him. When you pray, you got to know that. This is the one that you are talking to, this powerful God, this personal God. He, he calls him right there the one who keeps the covenant, and that means that he's bound himself to his written covenant and he has bound himself to respond to us as we draw near to him and obey. I mean, that's the covenant-keeping God that we serve. He's the merciful God. Thank God. Aren't you guys happy? Aren't you blessed that he hasn't given you what you deserve? That's what mercy is, right? Where would you be right now? <laughs> Where would we be right now if he gave us what we deserved? Everybody here, it's H-E double toothpicks. Don't ever forget that, man. It's hell. That's what it would be. But this is the God that we serve. Don't come to him not knowing 
that he is personal, that he is powerful, that he is great and he's awesome, and that he's merciful. He's ready and willing to pardon us of our sins. It says right here that he's the God who hears and he's the God who sees. And so when you pray, know who you're praying to. That's the first part of his prayer, who God is. The second part is who we are. If you look down at verse 6, it says again, Please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open, that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night, for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you, both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, or the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. You know, the first part is, is who you're talking to, the, the awesome God. The second part is who who's talking, who you are. And, and I pray that all of us here would know who we really are. I don't care how good you are. You know, a lot of you here, you're, you're good, you're, you're a lot gooder than, than me, and that, that's just the way it is, but none of us here uh, is able to stand before the holy God. I mean, you know, it's been said, the closer you get to him, the more you realize how far away you are. I mean, you stand in the light, everything's exposed. you got to confess your sins. And you got to come with a contract heart. You got to call it what it is. It's not just a mess up or a mistake. It's sin, because when you use the word sin, it makes it spiritual. It acknowledges that your offense is against God. An interesting thing is that although Nehemiah was a godly man, uh, he identified. He himself identified with the sins of the people. He didn't simply say, in a self righteous way, they have sinned. No, he said we have sinned. You know, Daniel did the same thing in Daniel chapter 9, verses 3 through 5. I encourage you, write that passage down, and if you want to get, you know, blessed, man, read that passage, because it's the exact same format. The great God, the confession, the covenant-keeping God, and then, you know, all the promises of God. You know, here we see Daniel and Nehemiah praying this prayer of confession, which then moves on to the prayer that possesses the promises in verse 8. Remember, I pray the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the farthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. I'm telling you this, man. If you want to radically transform your prayer life, which, no offense, but I have a feeling a lot of you here need to radically transform your prayer life, pray about this, what we have in front of us. First, this does talk about how good God is, how awesome God is. Now, I, when I, a while back, I used to think, well, you don't need to tell God who he is. He already knows who he is, the great God, the awesome God. But you see, when you're telling God that, what are you doing? You're telling yourself that. Lord, this is a heavy situation, Lord. This is heavy. We've tried everything. 
I, I don't know if this one, can, can you do this one? Oh yeah, you're the great God, the awesome God. Not only, not only that do you tell yourself who he is, but you're also telling him, and I believe in you. God, I believe you're great and awesome and merciful and you keep your covenant. And I believe you hear me. And I believe you see me and us and our situation. That's why it's important to start with who God is, but then who you are. But don't do that in a flippant way. Don't do that in some like, oh, yeah, Lord, you know, you saw me kind of, you know, cop a bad attitude with my wife yesterday. And, you know, that's not a really a big deal because, Lord, you know how she is anyway, <laughs> right? <laughs> the Lord is saying, hold on a second, son. I called you to die for her. Get nailed to a cross, buddy. You see, we got to call sin for what it is. It's sin. And you start confessing your sins, then God will move in, in your prayer life. But then after that, what you need to do is you need to start laying hold of those promises, right? The promises of God. I mean, you know that song we sing, He's a Good, Good Father? You know, I learned this a long time ago. I learned it when my kids were little. Don't make a promise to them that you are not going to keep. You know, like let's just say you go to work and you say, oh, I'll be back at 5 and I'll bring you some ice cream, and you don't. What does that do to her? You know, and I did some stuff like that a couple of times, and then I learned, you know, I, I will never make a promise to my children ever again that I, that I cannot keep. Because I don't want to break their hearts. Well, if that's true for me, how much more for God? I mean, will he keep his promises? Oh, I promise you, he will. You know, I was reading an article in Time Magazine and was kind of researching this. And back in 1956, there was an article published by a man named Everett Storms. And he went through and he counted, and there are 7,487 promises of God to man in the Bible. Think about them. And think about how blessed it would be for us to know every single one of those promises. Because promises are so important. This is how we live. A lot of people want to live by explanations. Lord, why this? I don't get that. But where Risby said, we don't live by explanations. We live on promises. I mean, if God tried explaining the vast purposes of mankind in a fallen world, our fallen minds wouldn't understand his explanations anyways. God's not going to explain things to you why you're going through what you're going through, but he will promise you, I will go with you through it all. In the fire, in the floods, no matter what it is, I promise you, Isaiah 43, 1 through 2, that I will be with you. See, that's how we live. We live on promises. We got to know them and we got to we got to claim them. And a lot of that claiming of those promises is through prayer. And I read a story about uh, a man, Crowfoot. That was his title. He's a great chief of the Blackfoot Confederacy in southern Atlanta. And he gave the Canadian Pacific Railroad permission to cross their land from a place called Medicine Hat to Calgary. And so, in return, this uh, chief was given a lifetime railroad pass. And so Crawford put it in a leather case and carried it around his neck for the rest of his life. But 
There's no record that he ever availed himself of the right to travel anywhere on that train. And you see, the promises of God are often treated in that way by Christians. You know, they hang them on their walls, or they have them on their t-shirts, or in beautiful plaques, or they treasure them in little promise boxes, right? But oftentimes they don't claim the promises for themselves in times of need. Of what use are they on plaques or in boxes when they're not in our hearts? Right here, God said, I promise that if you if you kick against the goats, I'm going to discipline you because I love you. But then he follows up that promise with another promise. And when I get your attention, I want you to know that even if you're on the other end of the world, if you've gone that far from me, it doesn't matter. If you return in your heart, then I'll bring you back to where you belong. See, and that's what Nehemiah was praying. He was praying that promise. He knew the promise of Leviticus 26. He knew the promise of Deuteronomy chapter 4 and Deuteronomy 31 through 5. You know, Nehemiah, he, he interceded in verse 10. He says, now these are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. And Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to to fear your name. And it's just so beautiful when you're praying for people. He's interceding for them, but then he even prays for himself. In verse 10, in verse 11, uh, in the end, it says, And I pray and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. And so, so Nehemiah, he prays in the end for himself. Is it okay to do that? Yeah, because who else knows how messed up you are? <laughs> Other than your wife. Other than that, you know, no one knows as much. Uh, and not only that, but after four months of praying, um, God finally told him that it was time. Notice he says right there, this day. Lord, give me favor this day. After four months of praying, because remember, it's not just God's calling, it's also God's timing. After four months of praying, God said this to Nehemiah, because this is what he'd been doing. For four months, he had been going into the presence of the king, pretending to be happy. Think about that, because you couldn't live in the presence of the king if you were sad. So, just like a lot of Christians, for a lot of years or a lot of times, they pretend like everything's good. They pretend like they're happy, when in all reality, they're so far from God, they haven't heard his voice, their heart has not burned for God, and who knows how long. But they pretend like they're happy, like they got it all together. When God is just saying, I am waiting for the day for you to be honest. And for you to acknowledge the fact that your heart is breaking inside. And so Nehemiah, on the next day, he'll go into the presence of the king. 
and he would be sad. And we'll see how God uses that in a tremendous way. You know, I know I get all riled up and I get excited, you guys, because, you know, I, I just have it in me. I just know that God wants to use my life, that God wants to use your life in ways that will make a radical difference. Maybe it'll just be you and your kids, your mom here today, but God is going to use you like a Susanna Wesley. And you just never know. You might have a couple of John and Charles that are there. You're feeding them each day, and you're feeding them the word. You just be faithful. But you learn who you're supposed to care for. You learn how you're supposed to pray. And then you're going to learn, we'll see next week, what you got to do, and God will show you. But maybe, you know, there's some that are here that, in all reality, God's called you to, to be the next Billy Graham. But, but you would rather live your own life. And so God is saying, I understand that that's how it is, that, you know, we want to do our own thing. But let me remind you that your life is not your own. You are bought at a price. Don't get caught up in the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches that choke the word so that those seeds become unfruitful. You know, get caught up in whatever mission Almighty God has for you. You know, in closing, I was thinking about this guy, John Wycliffe. Some of you guys have probably heard of him. He was born in 1320, and he lived for 64 years. And he's a philosophy professor at the University of England. And, you know, at that time, the Roman Catholic Church was very corrupt, teaching that the only true church could understand the scriptures. And the way that the Roman Catholic Church would understand, would, uh, would, Interpret that as only the, the Pope and the priests. They're the only ones that could understand that. But Wycliffe said, no, I agree with the statement, but I disagree with what you what you think that means. Yeah, only the true church can understand the scriptures, but the true church are all the people of God. And so what Wycliffe then did, he rose up. God raised him up and he rose up. And he said, I'm going to do my best to get as many Bibles as I can into the hands of the people. And they started, they translated the Bible into English. This is in England. And even though it took 10 months to write a Bible, it didn't stop them. And they got dozens of Bibles out there. And what ended up happening is God used Wycliffe in such a tremendous way with his teachings that there was another man impacted by him named John Huss. And then John Huss impacted another guy named Martin Luther. Who brought the Reformation. See? And Wycliffe, his legacy didn't end when he died. He got that vision out there because God had put it in his heart. And a ministry was immediately started up after he died getting the Bible in as many languages as they possibly could. And so as they began to interpret the Bible in language after language, um, by the year 2000, they had completed the Bible in 500 different translations 
And now they're working on a goal of Bible translations in every language that's still remaining. That's 1,800 different languages. Talk about a man who's going to change the world. I'm telling you this. That could be you. The world has yet to see what God will do with one man who is recklessly abandoned to him. Maybe that will be you. I pray, you guys, that would be us.